Welcome to On Leading. I am Shauna Steffen, learning from Dr. Catherine Hayhoe today. As one of the world's leading climate scientists and a star expert in the award-winning Showtime and now National Geographic series called The Years of Living Dangerously, Catherine understands why the choices we make today have a defining impact on the options available to us in the future. Catherine is a United Nations IPCC scientist, director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech, and contributing author to over 120 scientific publications that report on the future impacts of climate change for entities like the National Academy of Sciences. More important, though, may be the fact that Catherine makes the science relevant to a broader audience by working directly with cities, states, and organizations around the world to prepare for climate change. In particular, as an evangelical Christian, Catherine integrates science and religion to communicate an urgent message for all of us. Climate change is real, and we must act now. Recognized as one of Time Magazine's most influential people for her restorative leadership that bridges the conservative climate divide, Catherine teaches us how scaling across shared values by having faith in people and in faith itself can help us look to the future with hope. Catherine, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, my first question, just to open the space, is when you think of all that is possible for our world, what do you envision or hope for? <laughs> um, I think that we all pretty much want the same thing. We all want a good life for ourselves and our family. We all want a safe and secure world to live in. Um, and especially, we want a world where we can interact with people. I think one of the biggest issues we have these days is the fact that we're so isolated. We're isolated um, physically, you know, living in suburbia with our little picket fences. Um, and we're even isolated emotionally because although we have so many ways to connect online now with Facebook and Twitter and things like that, it's still when it comes down to it you are there by yourself unless we have that human contact. So I would love to see a world where it's easier to get that human contact, where we live in the type of communities that we're starting mm. to see today, where you can mm. walk places and you can see your neighbors and you can actually talk to people face to face and you don't have to get in your car and drive an hour to go here and half an hour to go there. Mm. What compels you to do the work that you do? The urgency of the issue of climate change is what compels me. Um, I was studying astrophysics and I was very happy to be doing that. And I was envisioning a career of grad school and eventually being a professor studying quasars. Um, <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> which are very interesting. Yes, yes. Um, I'm sure they hold many insights for our, for our life in the future. But um, in third year university, I took a course on climatology uh, because you had to take breadth requirements. And I had already taken children's literature. I had already taken the Gothic Cathedral. Um, I had already taken a minor in Spanish. So at that point, I was like, okay, what else am I going to take? So wow. I took this class in climatology, wow. and I was completely shocked because, first of all, I didn't realize that climate science is all physics. And so everything I had been learning up to that point directly applied to climate science. And then the second thing I didn't realize is how urgent and how big this problem was. I had always kind of grouped climate change with, you know, water pollution, air pollution, deforestation, biodiversity loss, climate change, you know, this whole kind of range of problems. I didn't realize that 
we can't fix any of these problems mm. if we leave climate change out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's making many of these problems much worse, not just environmental problems, but problems of basic access to clean water and food for millions and even billions of people around the world. So when I found out how urgent it was, I thought, well, mm -hmm. I have, I just happen to have the exact skill set you need to study this problem. How can mm. I not do it? Mm. Thank you for discovering <laughs> that. <laughs> so... Speaking of that, you have made it your mission to explain climate change to people of faith. How will you know when you have succeeded? <laughs> well, first of all, the reason why I've made it my mission, and it's not just people of faith, it's also conservative people, is because um, I feel like everybody has the right to correct information in order to make their decisions. And I also have an enormous amount of faith in people that if people really do have the correct information, that they will make the right decisions. So when you look around, we see that uh, people of faith and people in the conservative community are being misinformed, and in many cases, deliberately misinformed regarding this issue. So um, the communities that I'm part of are being told false information, like climate change isn't real, or it isn't humans, or all those climate scientists are just making it up to give themselves a job. Uh, so... Because of that, I felt like somebody has to stand up and tell people that, no, this is serious. It, it made me feel like, like being a doctor and, or a physician, I should say. And a physician does, say, a scan of your body and they find something there. They find that there's a, you know, a little incipient tumor back here. And they don't want to tell you because they're scared that you're going to get mad at them or you're, they're going to accuse you of being in the pay of the pharmaceutical companies. And they have other people telling them, oh, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. But you know it is a problem and you know it is real. So you feel like you have this moral responsibility to say, look, I know what I'm talking about and this really is real. And here's the information that you need to make a good decision. So how will I know what I'm done? <laughs> Naively, when I first started studying climate science, I thought, well, you know, I'll just study it for a couple of years because surely we'll fix it soon because it's such a big and such an urgent problem. And when we, when we fixed it, I'll go back to studying quasars. Um, and that was a very long time ago. That was, um, I guess, almost 20 years ago now. Mm. So <laughs> at this point, I think that um, when it becomes more common than not in the Christian and conservative communities to acknowledge the reality of this problem and to want to do something about it, I feel like that's when my communication work is done. But my other work, my real work, so to speak, is working with cities and states and organizations to help prepare for climate change. So, for example, right now we're working with the city of Washington, D.C., and we're working with the city of San Antonio and Austin and Boulder, helping them fold climate change into their planning for their water resources, for public health, for um, everything, parks and recreation, all the different aspects of our lives that are affected by temperature, weather, rainfall, snow, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that part of my career is uh, never going to end because climate will continue to change over the century as a result of what we've done. Right. Thank you. If you could change one thing in the world right now with a snap of your fingers, what would you change and why? Um, let's see. I would, it depends on whether you're talking more realistic or less realistic. <laughs> um, I would, more realistic, the number one thing I would do is I would put a real price on carbon. Mm. 
We are not paying the real price for carbon when we fill up our car at the pump, when we pay our electricity bill or our natural gas bill. We're just not paying the right price. And so how can you and I make the right decisions when we aren't actually paying the right price for carbon? Now, let me just be clear. We are paying the price. We're just paying it differently. We're paying it through our taxes. We're paying it through the relief for all the billion-dollar disasters that are occurring as a result of climate change. So we are paying the price, but we're just not paying it connected to the sources of carbon that are producing it. Mm. So I feel like, again, given my faith in people and humanity, I feel like if we really knew what the real cost was, we would be making different choices. Mm. And I think that's the number one thing we could do um, uh, within this realm of possibility. Mm. Now, if I could wave a magic wand, (laughs) I would do something a little different. Studies have shown that the number one predictor of our opinion about climate change and whether it's serious, whether it's real, whether we need to do something, the number one predictor is the thought leaders who we listen to. Mm. And the thought leaders are not our faith leaders. They are not even our politicians. They are the conservative media. Because politicians get their talking points and their sound bites directly from the media often. Mm. So if I could change one thing with a magic wand, I would convince every single person in the conservative media that this was a very real problem, a very serious problem, and we have to fix it right now. Mm. Here, I here. Think, I, I think that would take a magic <laughs> wand, though. <laughs> yes, at this point, anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you, Catherine. My next question is, In your work as a climate scientist, Mm -hmm. you assess regional to local impacts of climate change on human and natural systems. When you see the data about climate change, how do you feel? When I see the future projections I do that clearly show the difference between what we expect if we continue on our current pathway, depending on coal and natural gas and oil for all of our energy, versus if we can transition off of those dirty fuels to clean energy, when I see the difference between a high versus a low scenario, it makes me feel hopeful that what we're doing can make a huge difference. So when I look to the future, I actually feel hopeful that there is a chance of making a real difference with the choices today. But (laughs) when I look at the data of what's been happening over the last 20 years, that is what scares me because data has shown that we have systematically underpredicted the rate of change in many cases. And we are not including all kinds of vicious cycles in our future models that relate to methane in the Arctic. We know that as the ground in the Arctic melts and as the continental shelf melts, which is even worse, all this methane is starting to be released. If it's underwater, so far it's still in the ocean. It hasn't quite made it up to the area. But if it's coming out of the ground, it goes directly into the air. And methane is 35 times stronger at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. So when I look at what's happening in the climate system around us, that, as a climate scientist, is what scares me. And that's what gives me even more urgency to say, look, the the doors are closing quickly here. Mm -hmm. we got to do something now while our choices still make a difference before we lock ourselves into a future that we do not want. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Catherine, you talk about the fact that Quote, the choices we make today and over the next decade will have a radical impact on the path we travel in the future. My question is, above all else, with that in mind, what would you have all people understand about the reality 
the risk, and humanity's best possible response? Great question. I think that we, we all need to understand, first of all, that climate is changing. It isn't just a matter of looking at thermometer records or satellites. There's over 26 and a half thousand indicators of a warming planet, many of them in our own backyards. So we're seeing trees and flowers blooming earlier in the year. We're seeing all kinds of bugs and insects moving north. We're seeing glaciers melting. We're seeing beetles consume our forests. We're Mm -hmm. seeing wildfires burn greater areas. We're looking at increased heavy rainfall and flood events, even stronger snow events, rising sea levels, stronger hurricanes. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So it isn't just about one specific line of evidence. We are seeing it everywhere. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know is the fact that we've looked at all the usual suspects. We've looked at the sun and natural cycles and volcanoes and the Earth's orbit and the ice age. We've looked at all of the natural factors and they all have a perfect alibi. If our temperature were being controlled right now by natural factors, we would be getting cooler and we're not. So humans are the only explanation for the warming that we're seeing. And in fact, if you look at the last 6,000 years of temperature on this planet, you see that our warming after the last ice age peaked about 8,000 years ago. And then over the last 6,000 years, we're going down, 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 getting colder and colder until the Industrial Revolution. And all of a sudden at the Industrial Revolution, boom, our temperatures just did a U-turn and are basically shooting straight up. But... Even still, there is a lot we can do today. Climate change matters to us because it's affecting us already here and now in the places where we live. It's affecting us through our weather patterns, through our rainfall, through our extreme heat events. We're seeing it today, but our choices make a big difference. So we are gonna see some amount of change in the future, but the amount of change that we're gonna see depends on how much carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, and that depends on how much coal and oil and natural gas we burn. So as a Saudi oil executive once said, the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stone. In the same way, the oil age can't end just because we run out of oil, it has to end now because that's the only way we can ensure a future that's gonna be safe for us, that we can adapt to, that we can still make sure we have what all of us humans want, which is a safe world to live in and a good life for ourselves and our family and our community. Thank you. Wow, great. (laughs) In the Showtime series, The Years of Living Dangerously, you gave a climate change talk and an audience member said she realized that if we start doing the right things, we can probably save our planet. What are those right things? Well, first of all, it's, it's not just about saving the planet, it's about saving people too. Mm. So often there's this idea that it's, you know, environmentalists want to save the planet at the expense of the human race, mm-hmm. um, including our well-being or our economy or our style of life or whatever it is that, that we think of. Mm-hmm. But really, when we look at it, the most vulnerable species on the planet to climate change is us. Because we have built this vulnerability into our infrastructure. So If we, you know, if it were a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago and sea level rose two or four or six feet, what would the people living on Manhattan Island do? Pick up their tents and move. You know, what would you do? What would we do if the caribou shifted 300 miles north? 
pick up our tents and move with the caribou. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, we have two-thirds of the world's biggest cities within just a few feet of sea level. And so when sea level rises two, four, and eventually six feet, we can't pick up Houston and move it. We certainly can't pick up Shanghai and move it. So it's not just about saving the planet. It's about saving us people. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't we care about that? No matter what our political affiliation or no matter what our perspective on faith and spirituality, we all want to make sure that we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. So what can we do about that? Mm -hmm. The good news is, is that many of the choices are in our hands. As individuals, as consumers, we control a large part of U.S. emissions. With the simple choices we make every day, what type of light bulb we replace? When our, our old incandescent burns out, do we put a new LED in? If that's the case, we save about $30 in electricity over the lifetime of the bulb. But if every home in the U.S. just did that one time, that would be like taking a million cars off the road. So there's all kinds of little things we can do. But at the same time, we have to have the right prices attached to our choices. And so that's why if I could do one practical, feasible thing, it'd be to put a real price on carbon so that when we buy those light bulbs, when we buy that new car, when we figure out how much we're going to heat or cool our house and if it's worth buying that new thermostat, when we make these choices, we know how much it's really going to cost us because right now we don't have access to that information. My next question is, what does sustainability mean to you? Mm, great question. I think of sustainability as making sure that we always have enough for the future. Because unsustainable means we're going to run out, mm. that we're using something up too quickly. Mm. Sustainability means that we're using it at the speed at which it can replenish itself. So whatever mm. resource we're using, um, whether it's our food, our water, our energy, we're using it at a rate that ensures it will not run out. Mm. And here's the interesting thing, is that Solving the climate change challenge is crucial to ensuring the sustainability of humans on this planet. Because we're talking about switching from a source of energy, fossil fuels, that is finite, that we are clearly using at an unsustainable rate because it cannot replenish itself over human timescales. I mean, these fossil fuels were formed over millions of years, not over hundreds of years, the rate at which we're using them. So our fossil fuel use is inherently unsustainable. It can never be sustainable. But by switching to wind, solar, tidal, and other types of renewable energy, that is inherently sustainable because it will never run out. We will never run out of wind. We will never run out of solar energy. If we do run out of solar energy, that'll be because there's no more sun, and then that'll be the least of our problems, worrying if we have electricity in the house. Um, so climate change and sustainability are not the same things, but they are intimately connected to the point where we have to address climate change in order to ensure our sustainability. On the flip side of it, though, I would also say that climate change is making many sustainability issues worse. So often when people talk about sustainability, we're concerned about maintaining ecosystems, maintaining access to clean water, ensuring people have enough food to eat, um, ensuring sustainable systems that support humans and natural life on this planet. Mm -hmm. But what climate change is doing is it's challenging those sustainability efforts. So we're trying to get people clean water, but as climate change increases our risk of heavy rainfall events and flooding, it increases water contamination risks, and it makes it even harder to get people clean water. We're trying to make sure people have enough food to eat. But as temperature rises, crop yields drop. And so as it gets warmer, we're having more and more trouble producing even the same amount of food, let alone more food. So really, I think of it as almost like 
trying to trying to um, address sustainability is like trying to pour all of our efforts and attention and time and money into a just giant bucket. But climate change is the hole in the bottom of the bucket. Mm-hmm. And climate change is getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. So we can't actually fill up the sustainability bucket. We can't ensure the sustainability of ourselves and this planet if we don't fix the hole in the bottom, which is climate change. Mm. What do you think it will take to bring out the best of our diverse humanity to ensure a sustainable future? Ooh, that is so hard. I, I completely agree with the question. I think that we all have all the values we need. Um, to care about sustainability because again we all want the same things we all want really we do want a sustainable planet a sustainable life we might not call it that Mm -hmm. but that really is what we all want we want a, a safe secure life for ourselves for our children for our grandchildren that's what we all want but right now we're caught up in so many um what would I call them? So, so many uh, pitfalls of our human condition. Um, here we're in a society that has become increasingly polarized over the last 20 years. We're in a society that's very much ruled by short-term gain versus long-term benefits. We're in a society that's very much ruled by the actual financial profit versus the social profit in terms of investing in people rather than money. So we're caught in a society where it's really hard to see the way into that future. And so I hate, I hate to sound pessimistic, but some of my colleagues have said, and I'm thinking I might agree with them, that we almost need a shock to our system to jolt us out of this complacency mm. that we're in, that if we throw enough money at a problem, we can fix it, and that the market is king. So with the issue of climate change, for example, when you look at Europe, there's a very different attitude there towards climate change than there is here. Well, in 2003, they had a heat wave in Europe that killed 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. That's 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. And the risk of that heat wave had doubled because of climate change. Mm-hmm. So there was a chance that they could have had that heat wave naturally, but the risk had already doubled by 2003 because of climate change. And so that, I think, had a profound impact on people's attitudes when they see this is serious, this is real, Mm -hmm. and this can kill me or my family. Mm -hmm. And that really creates a profound mindset, change in our mindset, thinking, okay, we really do need to move in this direction. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in North America, we haven't seen many of those events yet Mm -hmm. where we really take this issue seriously. So I hate to say it, but I feel like a jolt to the system Mm -hmm. um, may be what we need to break us out of our current pathway and give us the motivation to think differently about our future. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I want it. I no, don't. I hear I would, you. Yes, I, hear I would you. much rather that we made that decision now before things get worse. Right, right. It's kind of like a doctor, you know? Um, often we know that our lifestyle is unhealthy. We know that we're not eating what we should. We know all of that, but we don't change anything. Why not? Right. Is it because the information is uncertain? No. We know what type of food we should and shouldn't be eating. We know how much exercise we should be getting and we're not. So these things are very clear. We still don't do them until often we have a health scare. Mm -hmm. And once we have that scare, that is what we need to remind ourselves of our own mortality. And often the most healthy people in the world are the people who have had those health scares Mm -hmm. and who have subsequently made the right choices. So I feel like that's Mm -hmm. just part of the way we think of as humans. And that may be what what happens in this case, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. When you think about this unique time in our planet's history, um, what would you say is distinct about the leadership that's needed? Hmm. That's a great question. I think that is related because what we see is we live in a time of unprecedented information flow. 
I mean, with the internet, um, with the, even with just the satellite data we have, let alone all the information we have on polling people and on current issues and on 24 hour news feeds. I mean, we are inundated with information all the time. But at the same time, we have leaders who are making inf- making important choices regarding our future that are not based on any information whatsoever. Hmm. Um, and in fact, we live in a world where people now say, oh, well, your facts are just as good as my opinions. In a time when we have more facts than ever. And, you know, you may not agree with the fact, you may not like the fact, but if you don't like gravity and you step off a cliff, gravity still operates. <laughs> and that is the difference between a fact and an opinion. So I feel like we live in a very interesting time where there is a super abundance of facts, far too many for any single human being to ever absorb. But at the same time, we are trivializing and ignoring those facts to a greater extent than possibly ever before as well. Mm. And so your thought is that the leadership needed at this time can actually sort through those uh, facts and, and identify the most um, significant ones to share with others and help others get them. And to make, to make decisions about And to too. make decisions. Great. Yes. Great. Thank yes. you. And of course, my perspective is very biased by the fact that I'm in climate science <laughs> and I have to recognize in other areas of, of life facts are being used to make decisions, but I think it's not just about climate science. We see the same thing in terms of health issues. Um, We see emotions rather than facts ruling the day with decisions we make regarding um, vaccinations or even the level of fear over, you know, something like Ebola Mm. versus other things that kill people every single day. Um, But nobody really is very concerned about. We see all kinds of fear-mongering and emotions being used in issues like immigration and international relations. I mean, when it comes down to it, we humans are not so different than we were 2,000, 5,000, or 10,000 years ago. We just like to think that we are. You were acknowledged among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, speaking of leadership. What has been key to your ability to have positive influence? Being positive. (laughs) (laughs) I think that in this world, there's so much negativity. There's so much um, making people afraid and saying negative or bad things, trying to put other people down. I think that really the key to my success has been even though the issue I talk about is so challenging. Mm. um, Probably the number one question I get is, how can you still stay positive when you're studying something like climate change? But I think that it is essential to look to the future with hope. Because fear only paralyzes us. And we cannot afford to be paralyzed right now. We need to be in motion. We need to be making decisions, choosing which pathway we want to pursue in the future. And so that's why hope is so essential. So that has been a key part of my own life and a key part of what I try to share with others. What has your journey taught you that you would like others to learn from? The number one thing that I have learned, and I have learned this very much through personal experience, is that we have more in common than we do that divides us. But we all, all of us, no matter what end of the spectrum we come from and no matter what our goals are, as humans, we tend to focus on what divides us rather than what we have in common. And I saw this firsthand growing up. I grew up in a very conservative church where people argued over whether um, when we get to heaven, we get 
cups of joy that are all the same size but with different amounts of joy in them or whether all of our cups are full but the cups are different sizes. Um, people argued over which translation of the Bible to use. Um, after I grew up, got married, moved to Indiana, we went to a church where a third of the people had just left because they didn't like the blue that they had used to paint the sanctuary. It was the wrong shade of blue. So <laughs> growing up, I've had so many terrible examples of how tiny, tiny little differences have been used to separate people who agree on 99% of what's important in life and then just 1% was what divided them. So when, when we look at this issue of climate change, um, it's so divisive. Polls have shown that climate change is the second most politically polarized issue in the United States after whether you approve of the president or not. And that should be a polarized issue because otherwise, why are you one right. side or the other? <laughs> but climate change shouldn't be. So it's become one of the most divisive issues. Yet, at the same time, we all live on this planet um, unless we've signed up for that trip to Mars, this is the only place that we're thinking of living. We all want a healthy and a safe life for ourselves and our families and our communities. We all essentially want a healthy economy. You know, we want to be able to earn enough to support our family and to have a good life. Um, we all want clean air to breathe. We all want clean water to drink. We all want enough food to eat. I mean, we all want the same things. So rather than focusing on what divides us, focusing on what we all care about, and then saying, okay, we're all on the same page here. Now let's talk about the issues with the values that we all share in our hearts. So that is why I think it's so important to connect our values to our science. Because science can tell us, so with climate change, science can tell us, yes, we have a problem. Science can tell us why we have a problem. Science can tell us what's going to happen if we don't fix the problem. But science can't tell us exactly what to do. That's where our values come in. And for many of us, our values come from our faith. So that's why I think it's so important, again, to be that whole person, to engage who we are fully with important and critical issues like climate change, rather than trying to just say, well, this is the scientist part of my brain, and I'm turning off all the rest of who I am when I talk about this issue. Well, I thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, for sharing this time and space with me. Thank you. This is Shauna Steffen with On Leading and Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. When I asked Catherine how I could support her work, she asked that I help educate those who may not yet fully understand about climate change. So please join me by sharing this podcast widely and visiting CatherineHayhoe.com. I hope that you will subscribe to On Leading at restorativeleadership.org to hear more about restorative leadership in action. Thank you.